Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In collaboration with the Foundation for Art and Preservation in Embassies, FAPE, the National Gallery of Art hosted a panel discussion on the role of artists in international diplomacy on May 7, 2014. Robert Storrs presents an overview of FAPE's recent acquisitions and installations for American embassies around the world. In a conversation moderated by gallery curator James Meyer, actress and playwright Anna DeVere Smith and artist Carrie Mae Weems discuss the impact of creating and sharing their work in a global community. Hello, everyone. I'm James Meyer. I'm Associate Curator of Modern Art at the National Gallery. Welcome to this uh, afternoon's panel, The Role of Art in Diplomacy, the artist in a global community. On behalf of the trustees of the National Gallery, I want to, to um, also welcome the members of FAPE, the Foundation for Art and Preservations and Embassies, um, to this afternoon's event, which they have organized. FAPE, as you know, is the leading nonprofit organization dedicated to providing permanent works of American art for American embassies worldwide. Through site-specific commissions, original print and photography collections, preservation projects, and other arts initiatives. For over 25 years, FAPE has contributed to the United States Department of State's mission of cultural diplomacy by partnering with American artists whose works encourage cross-cultural understanding within the diplomatic community and the international public. All artworks commissioned or placed by FAPE are gifts representing the generosity and patronism of the the United States artists and donors. So now on to our panel. This afternoon's session has two themes, it seems to me. On one hand, the role of art in diplomacy defined as, quote, the conduct by government officials of negotiations and other relationships between states. That's the dictionary. Diplomacy is the interaction of governments as they pursue their national interests, and indeed art has for centuries had a not insignificant role to play in diplomacy. What is art's role in this regard in the 21st century? How does an organization like FAPE facilitate diplomacy, that is to say the concerns of the United States, abroad in a period of intensified interactivity between nations and cultures, a process often described as globalization, a period characterized by an ever-increasing mobility and such technological advances as the internet, social media, and cellular communication. Which leads to our panel's second theme, the artist in a global community. This topic shifts the focus of discussion from art as a category to the artist and from the nation state and its concerns to the idea or the ideal of global society that transcends national borders, a community, quote unquote, of individuals cognizant of one another's cultural and national differences. Uh, an ideal that the philosopher Antony Appiah has described as cosmopolitanism, i.e., we are each aware of each other's differences, and in being aware of that, we transcend our own differences. So the work of the art and the artist, diplomacy and global community, these are our topics. Our panelists will, I suspect, have much to say on these themes, and I will introduce them very briefly. Robert Storr is an artist, writer, curator, and professor 
He's currently dean of Yale Art School, and he was previously the solo professor of modern art at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. And prior to that, he was curator of painting and sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art, where he curated major shows of artists like Elizabeth Murray, Gerhard Richter, Tony Smith, and Robert Ryman, and he oversaw the project series of contemporary art shows. He was also the commissioner of the Venice Biennale in 07, the first and I believe the only American to have this position. At FAPE, he's the chairman of the Professional Fine Arts Committee, the group of specialists who invite artists to contribute works to American embassies. Carrie Mae Weems has exhibited her work at the Whitney, the MoMA, the Met, and elsewhere, and her work is owned by many of these institutions, including, I am happy to say, the National Gallery. We just acquired a work of Carrie's this past month. And she's currently the focus of a retrospective now on view at the Guggenheim through May 14th. So you just have seven more days to see Carrie's show if you haven't, and it's really good. A recipient of the Rome Prize, NEA grants, and others, she was awarded a MacArthur grant as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Congressional Black Caucus this past year. And as an artist, she's participated in FAPE's programs. And lastly, Anna DeVere Smith is an actress, a playwright, and a professor. Her one-person plays, based on her own research, address a myriad of social concerns through theater, including inequality, health care, and race relations. She's been nominated for Tony's, Obie's, and the Pulitzer Prize, and she's been awarded a MacArthur Fellowship as well, the National Humanities Medal, and countless honorary doctorates. Her plays have been produced on PBS, and she's had many appearances on broadcast television and film. And between doing all of that, Anna DeVere Smith is university professor at NYU. So those are our panelists, and now let's have a seat and talk. I think it's you, Rob. Okay, good. I just want to make sure I'm not jumping the gun. Okay. Um, The images basically tell a relatively simple story, which is the range of activities that FAPE has undertaken over a considerable number of years. I will talk a little bit about what it is and how it operates, and then I'll talk a little bit about some of the issues that James has raised. Um, FAPE is an organization where patrons and artists come together to make works available for permanent installation in American embassies. Uh, Some of these works are prints, many of them are prints, and the prints program has been very active for many years, uh, and it involves works by any number of artists, some of which you will see from above me, in fact, most of which you will see from above me, and the additions are made in various and sundry sizes according to the print process and the difficulty of creating large or small numbers. Uh, They are then distributed to the embassies so that any one print may show up two, ten, thirty places possibly. Uh, The photography program, which is another multiples program, is recent, uh, and it is something which has also uh, already been developed uh, into a really active program. It's in recognition, obviously, maybe overdue, uh, of photography status as a a modern art form, Uh, and Carrie May has been uh, the contributor of one of this year's uh, major pieces in this uh, area, Uh, and we are gradually accumulating more of them. And again, the edition sizes vary, but the goal is to have prints of great variety and photography of great variety in many places. And actually in conversation with one another in these places, so that if you would enter an embassy, you will see works by different artists, and it will be a sort of a mini uh, dialogue of images uh, in a variety of different places throughout the building. 
And then we have gifts of unique works of art that have been given often by donors, but in some cases by the families, survivors of artists, and sometimes by the artists themselves. So major paintings, sculptures, uh, and other kinds of works that are uh, uh, there on display in the most prominent parts of these embassies, uh, where they are seen by the largest possible number of people. And then we have commissions that we do where artists are invited to do projects for a specific site. Uh, and they go there, for example, Don Gummer is now in the process of developing such a project, and will go to Russia to look at the uh, site and develop a piece for that particular site. Joel Shapiro, who's done two of these things for us uh, and has recently contributed a piece, uh, additional piece to the U.S.-UN Embassy in New York, which is a maquette for the piece in Kwangju, which you'll be seeing in a minute, is another. Ellsworth Kelly has done a number of projects for us, and Saul Lewitt, both his survivors, his widow, and children, and also Saul himself has contributed a number of things. Dorothea Rockburn is about ready to go to Jamaica to install a project that was specifically made for Jamaica. In each case, it is a unique uh, event, and it is a unique site, and the piece is made in, in a way that will sort of uh, stand in, in a large way, both for the artist's work and for a whole dimension of art making uh, that is out there to be done. Now, I should say, first of all, that there are many givers in this situation. The patrons of the arts and the people who both give art and money to make this possible are enormously generous, but nobody is more generous than the artists, and I'll have said this before on other occasions, but I'll say it again. Uh, for an artist to not only give works of art that are of financial value, but also, and I think even more importantly, to give precious time to a project for which they get no remuneration, nothing, really, except the satisfaction of having done it. Uh, there is not a prize at the end of this project. There is no tax uh, uh, return on this whatsoever. This is really a gesture on behalf of the country, uh, and it is something that comes out of them and them alone. They have new ideas. They devote real time to it. Anybody who's ever made public art knows how complicated it is because you have to deal with all of the logistical contingencies. You have to deal with, in the federal government, with all the administrative levels, etc., etc., etc. It's a major undertaking. And so those of us who are involved in this process are enormously grateful for the artists who do it. Uh, I would then say that the audience is grateful for it, and the audience is twofold. Uh, the audience is in part, and a very significant part, the people who work in embassies. Uh, there are many people in the diplomatic corps, in the military, in all kinds of different missions and so on and so forth, who spend an awful lot of their time uh, inside these buildings. And to have things that represent the sort of vitality of the culture from which they come when they're mostly living in some other culture is a terrific uh, thing. And I will tell a story which I often tell, but uh, I will just tell it again because it's a good one, uh, which is basically... Uh, if you uh, install art in an office site, you often get grumbles about things that are, you know, strange to the people who are working there. They're not used to having uh, contemporary art at home, and they wonder about what this strange, peculiar stuff is. Um, I will say that this is very seldom the case in our experience. People really welcome this material uh, and would be very sorry to see it go. And happily, this is a program where it doesn't go. 
Once it arrives, it stays. It doesn't matter what the particular taste of a particular diplomat may be, uh, a particular administration may be, or whatever it is. The decisions are made collectively by a bipartisan group of people, and then those decisions are firm, so that the work of art has a life over time. And I will say, having been an art handler in a situation where I hung things up in a corporate office and got those grumbles, I can hear them still, uh, what happens is that people are gradually converted by the work. Uh, In that situation, I sometimes had to go back and take the work off the wall to loan to an exhibition, and the very same person who complained of its arrival then would complain that I was taking it away. Um, But the thing is that in this situation, it isn't taken away, and people begin to have a real sense of possessiveness in all the, the positive ways that that can be true under these circumstances. The second audience, of course, is those people who come to do whatever they have come to do at the American embassies, people mostly from the host country, often not, though, people who are traveling as much as people travel nowadays, but for whatever reasons have business with the embassy on site. So that they come and get to see part of America which is not represented by our foreign policy or the public face of our government or any particular national thing, but rather the variety of cultures, the variety of peoples, the variety of tastes, the variety of imaginations and inventions that this country contains, or at least a slice of it so that people can imagine what the vector might be if it was widened up from that slice. Uh, So that this is a a way in which people can come understand something about what the United States is from a distance if they never get here. Um, If they get here, of course, it's an introduction to some people they should follow up on and learn more about when they do get here. So it's it's an opportunity to familiarize themselves with contemporary art. And there was a time, not so very long ago, in the middle of the last century, when many people thought Americans didn't have a culture. Uh, They thought we were a new nation, and they thought we were mostly imitative of our European origins. Uh, We now know, of course, that our origins are not exclusively European. (laughs) They, in fact, never were exclusively European. They are Native American, they are African American, they are Asian, and many other things. But the point is that the idea of America as a culture, which was entirely new, is beyond us. Now we're dealing with both the variety the diversity of what we have, and also the fact that it really is a long history, a complicated history, and bits and pieces of it are a way of sort of getting people's attention to think about what else there might be that they might think about. Now, uh, that's rapid fire. That's sort of my style. I guess too much teaching does that to you. Um, But I'll just follow up with a response to James's comments. Uh, And this is actually a personal view, but I think it reflects a good many of the artists participating in the program. Uh, There are, of course, uh, classic examples of artists as diplomats. Rubin was, in fact, a very active and very shrewd diplomat. Uh, Saint-Jean Perce, the poet, and Paul Claudel, the poet, uh, both French, were diplomats. Uh, Lawrence Durrell and Harold Nicholson were both diplomats. Uh, uh, Octavio Paz and Carlos Fuentes were both diplomats. They weren't visual artists, but they were people who were writers of all kinds who were diplomats. But by and large, visual artists, with Rubens being an exception, uh, have not been diplomats themselves. And most of the artists that I know are not interested in being diplomats, actually. Uh, They're not interested in having their art be thought of in terms of what it does for something else, but rather they're interested in terms of what their art does for itself and does for the viewer in dialogue with that viewer. Uh, And in that respect, I think it's important that this is a program which has no a priori point to make. We are not asking artists to make patriotic art or any kind of art. Uh, It is not that we are using it as a symbol that validates or questions any particular aspect of this country, although an artist wishing to make such a statement can do it. 
we are not particularly aligned with the foreign policy of this year or 10 years hence or 10 years back. Uh, this is art on its own terms in a venue which is diplomatic, and the service that it does is a service that, again, is directly to the artist, to the people who are brought to the art, and to the thoughts that they share and that are engendered uh, amongst them all as it operates. And this is, at least in my view, why it works and why it is different from almost all other examples of art and diplomacy. So thank you. Um, so thank you so much uh, to the Lauders and uh, to you, James, and to FAPE, to Eden Rafshoon for inviting me here. I'm not a visual artist, and obviously the, the focus will be uh, the visual arts. Um, so I thought that, uh, James, you know, you sort of really laid out that we have sort of two topics here. And I thought that at least to start, what I would like to think about out loud with everybody is the role of an artist in diplomacy. Do we even have a role? Um, and uh, so I'm just going to uh, share with you some of those thoughts um, and then try to look at diplomats as artists. So um, I've been thinking a lot about hospitality. And I don't mean, um, you know, what, uh, you know, inviting somebody over for a glass of lemonade or to come in from the outside when it's hot for a glass of water if they're working on your lawn or even how we treat our guests. But a different type of idea of hospitality, which um, I've been thinking about previously as a radical welcome, which I think in my generation, a lot of what we were asking traditional institutions to offer was a sort of a radical welcome of us, and now we're in another phase, which is very interesting. But to take that from the idea of welcomeness, and I think on that border between nations where negotiation happens, there's always that opportunity for the signs of welcome to happen as a kind of, to use that expression, soft power, and that that's an essential thing, especially in the world right now. One of my very smart students at NYU, having heard me talk a lot about the radical welcome, uh, um, Ethan Philbrick, um, in, in our Tisch School of the Arts uh, graduate school in performance studies, wrote to me an email about radical hospitality, because he'd heard me talk about hospitality. He'd heard me talk about the welcome. So he had this quote for me about the radical hospitality or the law of unlimited hospitality. Let us say yes to who or what turns up before any determination, before any anticipation, before any identification, whether it has to do with a foreigner, an immigrant, an invited guest, or an unexpected visitor, whether or not the new arrival is a citizen of another country, a human, animal, or divine creature, a living or dead thing, male or female. And that's Jacques Derrida from On Hospitality. I think that what we can do, not we should do, in our role as artists, who, as the wonderful artists involved with FAPE, the gift, the gift to have their art as a kind of a, a sign of welcome, when you talked, Professor Storr, Dean Storr, about, um, uh, uh, about uh, how these arts can or cannot have a message or say anything, or how they're sometimes 
an idea that others get about America. It's almost like those presents, those present works of art, are a form of welcome before anybody might cross our border. And so I think that this place of hospitality is one way that art and diplomacy can find a legitimate um, meeting ground. Because let's talk about process. I love process. So I think about the process that we as artists go through. And it seems that crossing lines in the world is a lot like what we do when we approach that which is strange, which all of us in making a work of art come upon. So even if I were to make a work, let's say, and most of my career has been about looking for the thing that is exactly not me. Interestingly, my sister (laughs) showed up today. I didn't know she would be here. But I was thinking this morning about the home I grew up in, and she only spent four years of her life in, 1312 North Mentolo Street in Baltimore, Maryland. So let's say at this point in my life, I say, well, after 30 years of going around America, talking to everybody who's not like me, from cowboys to uh, kids looting in streets, that I want to go back to 1312 North Mentolo Street. I want to go home. I want to write about that thing which is familiar. And just to test my memory, I'm going to take a tape measure to see if the distance that I think exists between the curb and the top of the porch when I would run after a lightning bug or run to catch up with Mr. Softy at night or good, good humor in the day, if it's the same. Well, of course, it won't be the same. And so in seeking the familiar, I find something strange. So when I think of those who dedicate their lives to diplomacy, it seems to me that they are people by nature who are interested in both approaching the strange and the familiar, and if anything, seeking to find some place where those who are very strange to one another might agree that they have something in common or some place for that which is familiar. So then I'm thinking about good diplomats and how they might be like us as artists. Um, There's a person who owes me, has helped me become more familiar to the American people. Um, Clap your hands if you've ever seen a show called The West Wing. Now be honest, be honest. Clap your hands if you saw my last play, Let Me Down Easy. Not as many, not as many. So, (laughs) Madeleine Albright. Uh, according to Madeleine Albright, I have no reason to believe it's anything but true, the West Wing was here um, uh, uh, filming on her block, and a woman of courage and confidence, she marched right up to the, um, to the producer and said, uh, all that stuff that John Spencer says, uh, the chief of staff would never say all of that. You need to have a secretary of state, and it ought to be a woman. And... Um, <laughs> I never got to be Secretary of State, but I was National Security Advisor. So, of course, I'm very interested, therefore, in the real Madeleine Albright as a type of a person I can think about and, uh, uh, well, you know, at the time of playing on the West Wing. So um, I went to her to talk to her, actually, about diplomacy. At the time, I thought about it as diplomacy, but for the purpose of this, call, uh, this I'm going to read to you, I'm not going to act like her, but I'm going to read to you word for word something she said about diplomacy, but I'm going to call it diplomacy or performance, and ask you to think about similarities just between diplomacy and, let's say, acting. So this is Madeleine Albright, word for word. Um, I'm asking her about her diplomatic toolbox, which she teaches about that at Georgetown. Uh, I have a combination I I switch signals. 
I can be very nice, and then I can get very tough. And when, I, when it looks like it's too tough, then I, then I flirt. <laughs> or I say something funny. Or kind of use a lot of interplay on things. It's, it's a matter of really trying to figure out what particular works, thing works, at what, at any given moment. I really love people, and I love talking to them, and I really love the issues. And I think sometimes I'm a surprise to people when they're negotiating with me because they think I'm just a nice person or something. And so it's a little bit kind of um, to, dis- to disarm somebody. And then I come in pretty tough. I mean, I, Milosevic, <laughs> who was trying to um, charm me. Then he would say to me, he started giving me the whole history of Yugoslavia. He'd say, you don't know our region. And I said, yes, I do. I live there. I grew up here. I know everything. Don't try to tell me about this region. I, I could be nice. But I could also be very tough and direct. But I did use everything I had, believe me. And one of the things, I was telling you about the Haiti thing. What happened was we were negotiating late into the night, and I looked perfectly awful. And there are breaks that you can take. So I decided that I couldn't, I would never win anything if I looked like I was exhausted. And so I went back to my apartment. I took a bath. I put on a blue linen dress that I knew I looked good in. I went back. I looked fresh as a daisy. They all looked exhausted. (laughs) And I think there's a certain part about how you can just appear that you're in charge. I think it is a performance. And I've thought about that a lot. Interesting you should say that. And then this other one is on intelligence, or uh, I'm going to say for the purpose of today, blending. And I think that the artist is a very important part of the blend, which is also about how we can help the crossing of understanding by our presence. So the questions on intelligence um, are um, are a long-term issue. First of all, uh, this is something... I used to be known as a Soviet expert, which were people that studied the closed system of the Soviet Union. There was very little information. One of the things that was interesting about it was it was so hard to get, you know, it was like a big mystery, a puzzle. And and you would read the Soviet papers. You read them. And the minute that things are stated, you look to see if things are stated slightly differently. Because... They had a particular order that they said things in, and it was like reading, uh, you know, a treasure hunt or something to try to figure out what was a little bit different. Because so there was very little information, and our intelligence agencies were trying to figure out. They focused on how to read information out of very little, very little bit of information. What happened with the end of the Cold War and the spread of technology was all of a sudden there was too much information out there. And so it takes a very different kind of person to absorb huge amounts of information and analyze it versus somebody, versus somebody who's analyzing the order of five words. Or, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but they used to have pictures in the Kremlin and they'd have portraits during reviews of parades. And if somebody that would be in the middle was all of a sudden way out there or not there anymore, somebody that had been in the middle, this was a huge signal. But now there's just tons and tons of information. So that's one basic problem. Then there's the basic problem. There's huge confusion in the intelligence community now 
and they're taking a lot of hits, some of it justified, some of it not. There's also this question between technologically gathered intelligence and human intelligence. A lot of debates about that. A lot of this is very hard. Part of the thing about um, the human intelligence part is that we don't have enough people that not, don't, not just speaking Arabic. If you look at the map of Asia and Central Asia, I don't even know. There are hundreds of languages. It's just a great mishmash of people there. And we don't have the language capability there. Plus, a totally weird thing to say, we don't look, it's very hard for an American to kind of blend in over there. And spies, basically, to be a spy, you have to blend in and get their trust. And for me, the saddest thing, the amazing part of this country, is that we've had an open, we've had, we have had open arms. And has, we have rejuvenated, it's rejuvenated itself over the years by having waves of immigrants. And it just makes me sick when I hear about the fact that, um, you know, people can't get visas to come in. Or anybody who doesn't look exactly like us doesn't get to stay. Uh, and I think it must be terrible to be a Muslim man at this point. And I think the question is how do you trust, how do we get people to trust well enough to use some of them to try to figure out, I mean, as you say, there's such a variety of Americans we could blend in anywhere if we wanted to. And I just love this piece because of this whole idea of blending and uh, I think about belonging. And if an artist wants to in what we call globalization or interactivity, as you said earlier, James, if we really want to blend in and mean something, then I think we have to even... Uh, refashion ourselves. In my case, I'm limited by English. Carrie's in a better situation. She's not stuck in language the way that I am. But I would have to, I would have to be willing to make myself available even in a deeper way than I ever have before to that which is strange or different. Or even, as she said, be perceived to belong where you don't belong. And lastly, I just want to say that I think this way she talked about having to look deeply to understand what was going on in the Soviet Union must be a lot like looking at a work of art, really attending, paying attention, not to just what is apparent, but that which is not apparent. And then for all of us, we have the problem now that there's too much information. How do we keep up with all of it that's out there? That's what I wanted to say. So I, um, uh, as a visual artist, as a visual artist, I'm absolutely in love with what artists do. And I spend a great deal of time thinking about how we use our skin and our bodies to mark and to make. I spend a lot of time um, early in the morning with artists. I've gone to places like G's Bin because I was so in love with the G's Bin quilters that I had to shake Loretta Pitway's hand to thank her for what she has done for me. I find myself often being transformed by art. It has saved my life on more than one occasion. I wonder about the patterns. I wonder about the value of art. I wonder about the way in which artists are perceived and understood 
and negotiated and embraced and valued or undervalued. I think about people like Martin Fourier, who assisted me in climbing Jacob's ladder, stepping into the soul of myself, or someone like Teresita Fernandez, Fernandez, whose beautiful and brilliant work always assists me in understanding again something more deep and possible about myself or the extraordinary work of someone like David Hammond's hood piece, who I think is probably one of the most interesting contemporary artists out there. Artists are forever leading the way. They are forever opening up pathways of discovery for myself and for us generally. That America, for the most part, has not quite kept up with its cultural self, I think, is in the process of change. I think about the work also that, that I make, the sort of intersection of culture and activism. And so a few years ago, while thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois, I thought, now, how could I involve thousands of people in thinking about Du Bois? And so I contacted the American Peony Society and had a peony name for Du Bois, which is now available through White Flower Farms, and you can put it in your own garden. It's called the Hope Peony. Always thinking about these sort of intersections of activity. Our Hope Peony is going to be going into a garden at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst working on that project with uh, the wonderful Walter Hood, the landscape architect. The kinds of projects that I've made over the years are always fashioned around this intersection, this meeting point of contention and culture. This is for the Hampton Project. Raised very interesting um, ideas and views about the relationship of Native Americans and African Americans to the history and the practice of education, important work. And the work always raises, I think, important issues. They're rarely, it's rarely sort of discussed in terms of Jetstit's, quote, beauty, but often discussed in terms of the kinds of political, social, moral issues that are also at play uh, in the work and in the installations that I've made. I realized at a certain point that I've been involved with sort of aspects of diplomacy for quite a while. And uh, not that that was my plan, not that it was something that I was thinking about, but that it happened and grew naturally out of the way in which I work in the world. So I've been thinking about going to Rome for a very, very long time. And I've traveled the world, and I realized at a certain point that I hadn't gone to Rome, and that, in fact, I was really happy that I didn't go to Rome when I was 16, because probably I would have just had lots of sex and very little else. At 50, though, I was able to make work, really able to make work. And one of the things that ha happened as a result of making this work in, in Rome and uh, in and around Rome and Italy, the sort of Italians came to me and said that they were beginning to understand something about themselves differently as a result of the photographs that I was to make there. So that a kind of exchange happened, my perception of that place, how I patterned myself in that place, 
became a significant ground for reimagining their own position in their own country, which was sort of wonderful to sort of think about having a conversation in that way. It wasn't, again, planned. I was simply trying to understand myself in relationship to architecture, in relationship to questions of power, in relationship to questions of place. But what happened was something that was much bigger than that, which is always, I think, what happens in relationship to art. The same thing was true when I made work in Africa. I went there looking for the architectures of slavery, right? The architectures of slavery, what the slave coast was like. I really wanted to understand something about going to that place. But when I made work, for instance, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, that looked not only at Africa, but also at the Sea Islands in the United States, a number of Africans actually thought that it was about Africa, when in fact it was about the South. It was a way in which those two things came together, ideas about belief systems coming together in a way that sort of marked us as being not only similar, or rather not only different, but absolutely similar. The thing also that impressed me about being in a place like Africa was understanding the architectures of sexuality and the way in which sexuality had been played out architecturally, that you begin to understand who and what a building was for, who belonged to that space. Beautiful, beautiful architecture, right? Sexual to its core, right? We use architecture in the United States very, very similarly, but we don't talk about it in the same kinds of ways. This kind of work began to assist in that kind of broader dialogue and understanding the relationship of museum to audience, museum to artistic practice, was another way of sort of thinking about the role of architecture and the kinds of questions that are raised internationally in relationship to uh, contemporary and uh, historical uh, museums and places. Other kinds of interesting things, too, have come up out of sort of these sort of questions of art, art and diplomacy, who... Uh, who who can exhibit what? There is not always a, a, um, a, a consensus. For instance, in this piece, Blue Black Boy, it was going to be acquired, actually, by the State Department. Um, but then they decided that the language itself might be offensive. And so they pulled back, actually, on um, acquiring it and decided to go for other another body of work that was stripped of language, which I found very interesting. Again, this is the Sea Island series where South Africans actually thought that the work was not necessarily about the southern part of the United States, but was in fact about the southern part of Africa. The same thing happened in a place like Cuba, and going to Cuba, negotiating those pathways and working with various workers there allowed for a wonderful exchange of possibility around questions of labor. Of course, artists and elephants even have been involved in art. And when I saw these photographs of elephants painting, I was absolutely mesmerized. I thought, I don't know, maybe we don't need humans at all. What we simply need are elephants that know how to paint very, 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 very well. One of the projects that, of course, had been very, very important in terms of sort of diplomacy, one of the, the significant 
early exhibitions was, of course, the Family of Man exhibition. And that exhibition included 500 photographs from 68 countries. It was represented uh, by uh, uh, 273 photographers from around the world. Of course, it was done by the Museum of Modern Art. It was used absolutely around the issues of cultural diplomacy. Millions of people, 9 million, 10 million people saw this exhibition. The catalog for it by Steichen has been published. Um, oh, I don't know. It sold more than 4 million copies in the first few years of the exhibition. The, um, the book um, was later developed and enlarged later in the 1960s. Uh, that, again, went on to sell uh, millions of copies. It's an exhibition that's still uh, looked at, uh, considered, critiqued, examined in all kinds of ways uh, for what it was, what it meant uh, to be, um, to be for, for, for America to put this kind of exhibition together and to send it out into the world. Its current home now actually is in Luxembourg, which was the, the uh, uh, UNESCO site, Memory of the World site, which is where um, Scheichen himself came from. The exhibition was developed in, uh, again in 1955, and as I said before, it continues to be a very, very important site of investigation and exploration around ideas about uh, the commonality of uh, the commonality of us and the differences of us, but uh, important. This is um, Joel Meyerowitz, and I think that there's sound to this. Joel talking about his exhibition, Aftermath, which is one of the other singular exhibitions that has been mounted in recent years. Do we have sound for this? So it's for all of us who are outside the Forbidden City and who didn't know what was going on and who need to have some connection to the people who did the work and, and the, actual, the actual unfolding of this process. It's a very complex thing that many people figured out how to do. How do you take it apart? Of course, this exhibition was made for 9-11. Inside this forbidden city, and how the people did their incredible task of looking for the remains of every person who died there, and the incredible techniques that were developed to remove the debris, millions of tons of debris that were there as a result of the building's fall. I think there's a, a new generation of readers who already know this as a historical event 10 years ago, who are now going to be looking at it for the first time. And it's their education and their curiosity that's going to be served by this work. This exhibition, of course, uh, Aftermath, has uh, also traveled the world now, and it's become a very, very important document. Perhaps uh, um, one of the, one of the um, monuments of, of, of the tradition has been really in art, and you see has been jazz. And so I leave you with this extraordinary work by uh, the great Louis Armstrong Sachimo, who really um, was the... Uh, major 
king of, of uh, the p- diplomacy. Can we have the volume up, please? That's phenomenal talent. Um, was understood everywhere. He traveled the world for the United States in developing ideas about who we were and what our possibilities were. There are no words. Amazing, right? So, jazz was used as probably one of the most critical forces in uh, the arts and embassies programs earlier in uh, the 50s and the 60s, and really did change uh, the, the course of what we would understand to be America. Uh, and by America, I mean uh, an expanding sense of democracy, an expanding sis, uh, sense of freedom, which I think ultimately is what uh, art and diplomacy uh, are really all about. Thank you. I think we've heard three very different accounts of this very complicated topic. And we could be here, I think, for three more hours, or at least two, (laughs) to begin to do justice to this topic. But first of all, we have the figure of uh, Madeleine Albright. I was so glad that you uh, sort of allowed her to speak through your voice, um, because, of course, she's the diplomat. She's not an artist, although you said she performs. You've showed us that she's a performer, but she's the diplomat on behalf of the state. Then you had Rob's account of artists who, as Rob said, don't want to be diplomats. They want to make art. They want their art to communicate, to be seen. 
and to be out in the world. And then you have Carrie May. I was very interested when you said uh, that your art is diplomatic or you see yourself as a kind of diplomat. So I see three very different sorts of accounts of, of, of different uh, approaches to this question of diplomacy, three different roles uh, enunciated by the three of you. By the way, what did you mean that you see yourself as a diplomat? I don't think that it's something that, uh, it was, it's certainly not something that I set out to do. It's not a way in which I see myself normally. But absolutely, it's the way that it is. And, and I think that, you know, as artists move around the world, the way in which we engage, the way in which we bring people together, the kinds of questions that we ask when we are together, really sort of serves the, this, this, this notion of a kind of diplomacy that's bigger than nation. It's just not about nation. It's not, it's not that narrow. I think it's much more expansive because artists are always thinking about how do we transport ourselves beyond ourselves and into other kinds of territory, right? And so I think that in that way, absolutely, um, that, art, that art is very diplomatic in that way, if I can use that term, and that artists, to a certain extent, are also diplomats uh, because of the kinds of questions that we are engaged in around notions of liberty and freedom. It's a part of the practice itself, a part of the process of thinking about, uh, about the world and how you engage it aesthetically and artistically. So this artistic global community that artists participate in, made possible by recent technologies, the, the availability of transportation, communication. One could also mention the international shows that have developed around the world that you and others have participated mm-hmm. in, that Rob has curated. Mm-hmm. Rob, did you want to uh, jump in? I was just going to jump in and say that, you know, Carrie uh, has elected to do certain things, and other artists have also elected to do that. Uh, and that is perfectly within the range of what I understand to be the case in a country where artists are citizens of a country ruled by a social contract, but they are not there at the service of the state. And there's a huge distinction because there are many places where artists are expected to be pressured to be service in the service of the state or where any gesture that an artist makes is understood to be tacitly or openly of that kind. And I think it's important to uh, sort of underscore the fact that if people do things as Carrie does, that is her will as a citizen of a country where she could just as well will to the opposite. So when I hear the role of artists uh, as diplomats, what I see is an opportunity in a given that um, many of us never think that there is... We're always looking for a, a reason for why we are. In other words, we don't have art in the schools, for the most part, public schools in this country anymore. So part of our being is that we have to justify our existence or insist on our existence. And I think now, um, in this time, as you call it, interactivity, or what you said, uh, uh, Rob, about the variety of imaginations and inventions that this country contains, well, that's the case of everywhere in the world, where we live in a sense of strangeness. So there is something that we can do, by that I mean artists all over the world, whether it's in the service of the state or not, and that is to bring forward and to bring to bear and uh, in a world full of, of uh, almost xenophobia again, this idea of offering the variety of what 
any country might have to show that it's more than you see in the paper and more than you see in a, you know, a discussion of a war or the impossibility of being together. So I see the role that now more than ever because of heightened interactivity, there's a larger role for culture and for cultures moving and also morphing because of the presence of each other. I'll just throw out another variation too. Um, the famous statement that Matisse said uh, to the effect that a work of art, a painting, should be like an armchair into which a businessman settles at the end of a tired day. Um, that's a much argued over statement. Um, I wish I was such a businessman. I know quite a few. I, <laughs> I know they enjoy their paintings. But I would say maybe it would be good if people who were negotiating uh, treaties and trying to solve complex problems would periodically interrupt <laughs> the conversation, settle back into the contemplation of something on the wall which is either challenging or beautiful but gets their mind someplace else, and then come back to the task at hand. That in and of itself would probably solve a great many problems. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, that's, that's what the way in which you know, um, art has been used and anchored a, a great deal. And, you know, again, I was just sort of thinking about um, this. I go over this book periodically because I love it so much. And it's called Sachimo Blows Up the World. And it's about um, the way the jazz ambassadors and how music was really used in the early years, in the 1950s and the 60s. And very important as we were moving in this country into the civil rights um, the civil rights movements. I mean, this is really important. But one of the things that happened, um, for instance, in, 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 in Greece, when um, there, were, there were riots taking place in Greece, and Dizzy Gillespie shows up with his band, and they do this performance and literally stop people in their tracks. And before you know it, there are thousands of people not rioting, but applauding the music of Dizzy Gillespie. Right? And, uh, and Armstrong says, now if we can just get diplomats to pay just a little bit more attention to what it is that we do. <laughs> right? And so that's why I say that, you know, really, in the, at the end of the day, the, the, the work really transcends nation. It moves into other territory. While, while we can think of, uh, yes, I'm an, I'm an American artist, but I'm always thinking internationally. I'm thinking about how I intersect with the world. Now, now more than ever, I think. Yeah. If I can also shift the ground a little bit and talk to James, partly because both of us come from an art historical world where the idea of the arts having any relationship to government is questioned, and whether the idea of uh, sort of either surreptitiously or uh, openly uh, being uh, uh, spokespeople for ideas that may be contested. There was a time in this country, particularly during the Kennedy administration, when many writers uh, who were very contestatory went abroad with the aid of the State Department, Kurt uh, Vonnegut and uh, William Styron and many, many, many writers went out and did readings and were present in the world through activities of the State Department. They were most certainly not there to speak the foreign policy of the country. They were there to be themselves as writers, to say what they had to say, and to, by example, but not in a uh, preachy way, represent the latitude of opinion that was possible. Uh, and I think that's kind of the same in terms of the visual arts. Yeah, but that's, that's the positive spin on it, and I, I am sympathetic to that. And, but of course, at the same time, there's that other critique within art history, as you well know, Rob, 
um, that during the Cold War, abstract expressionist painting was um, sent around uh, to Europe in the New American Painting Shows, 58, 52, that that was, of course, sponsored by the International Council of MoMA and that the CIA was involved in this. And And the argument, as you well know, is that this non-ideological art, abstract expressionism, purely abstract, represented an image of freedom, of democracy, and was in fact in the service of a kind of Cold War uh, battle. That is the argument that we've all received in the history of art about yes. art and diplomacy and abstraction and diplomacy. And, and you, Rob, worked at the modern and you know the argument well. I guess my question would be is are we in a different moment geopolitically um, historically, we are in fact in a very different moment, and so perhaps that kind of discussion needs to be reopened um, away from that kind of narrative in a different way. Well, if I, I think it is a different moment. I also think the principal uh, thing wrong with that whole episode was that the involvement of government was not open. Uh, it, was covert. it was covert. The minute people know what they're signing on for, if they're the artists, the minute the people who come to the exhibitions know who the sponsors are, the minute the sponsors are not embarrassed to say who they are, you've got an entirely different situation. And I think that is what makes it possible for there actually to be very active involvement by government sponsorship of the arts, so long as everybody knows what's going on, and so long that everybody knows that there are no prerequisites for the artists. So the transparency. But also, we're no longer in that kind of bipolar Cold War situation. It's very different. Maybe we are. <laughs> well, but it, but it is a different, different historical situation. So the work of art is going to function differently in, you know, within this so-called global society than it would have within a Cold War dynamic. Right. But don't you also think that, just quickly, that, um, that we are also in a different situation in terms of technologies that... Uh, not so many people have to ask permission or be given license to put themselves in the world now or to make themselves evident in the world. Because of... Social media mm. and media in general. Right, right, right. But what are you know, these sorts of now, you know, how do you sort of assess um, 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 the biennial? Right, whether it's the Johannesburg Biennale or the Venice Biennale, how do we assess them in terms of what we we come to know, um, you know, a, a, around issues of diplomacy? If we come to know anything around the issues of diplomacy, I mean, do you think that you know that those kinds of vehicles are used in the same way, or if they sort of changed, change their overarching? I mean, I think I think the Biennale domain now, which is over 100 exhibitions worldwide, has elements of all of what we're talking about, and there is certainly state sponsorship in many, many, many domains. And it is certainly the case, for example, I mean, years ago I used to serve on a committee called Etondonne, which gave away money for Franco-American exchanges. Mm -hmm. And we would have meetings here in restaurants, and we went to France to have a meeting, and we were invited to the Quai d'Orsay, which of course is the head, it's the State Department of the French government. You know, So we were, in fact, agents in place of the French government, I guess, um, but anyway, you know, in France, it's not questioned that the state will sponsor the arts. In this country, it is, but mostly because of bad episodes, and the bad part was the covertness of them. Um, but all around, in Germany, in France, in all parts of the world, uh, government sponsors the arts, and there is no problem with it as long as everybody, again, is free to do what they want to do and knows who's doing what. Right. Right. 
I think we have another minute or two, and I was wondering if anyone, any one of you wants to uh, say something or has a question. Please. I, I see you on the far right. Yeah? It's Cynthia Schneider. From Cynthia Georgia, Schneider. From Georgetown. Exactly, but they could only act it out in, in Paris. <laughs> or, 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 not, or Not in Mississippi. Or South African artists, uh, South African artists, um, you know, in theater, dance, and music, making the statement against apartheid and having quite an influence on us all in that way. I just go back to, I see it more in terms of um, the opportunity for artists to reach across the world for one another, towards one another. I'm thinking about something not said by an artist but an anthropologist, Margaret Mead, in a conversation with James Baldwin. She asked him the question, can we both stand shoulder to shoulder a continent or an ocean away working for the same thing? So I think that um, I mean, you came to a conference that, that we did in Abu Dhabi with artists from around the world. For me, it's more about the possibility now of artists sharing methods, sharing ideas, sharing loves together in a bigger community for making art that I think is going to make better art. And finally, you know, I mean, I think that there is, there is the... Um, and, and Rob is also an artist as well. You know, we're, we're all artists, actually, on this, on this panel. And um, I'm, I am endlessly surprised that anybody is interested in my work. And, um, and, uh, but I also uh, have a, a great sense that uh, uh, my role is uh, not as a, uh, again, as, a, as an American artist. I'm a, an American, yes. Uh, but I'm not necessarily an American artist, 
I simply think of myself as an artist who has the possibility of moving across many different kinds of territories. The issues that I raise are both issues that are raised here, but also issues that are raised in many places around the world. So that's really not the, the most important thing for me. Though I realize that work can be co-opted at any time by anyone and under any number of circumstances. It can be used, right? Once the work is moved into the world and the world has access to it in all kinds of ways and that, uh, and that you leave it for that because there's nothing that you can do to control it. You know, what you do is move on to the, to the, to, to the next body of work that, you, that, that I must necessarily make because it matters to, uh, uh, to my sense of understanding, meaning, and importance. And I just sort of underscore that by saying among the artists represented at the U.S.-U.N., uh, delegation installation that we did are Ilya and Emilia Kabakov, uh, who are two Ukrainian-born artists who made their careers in Russia, who live in the United States, whose two former countries are now at loggerheads. Um, this is representative of what happens. Or my favorite case is a woman named Tanchana Truve, uh, who is in my Biennale. Uh, she is spoken of as a French artist. Her mother is Italian, and her father is Senegalese, and her first language is Wolof. Now, what does she belong to? Her passport is one thing. Her identity is many things marbled. And I think increasingly we're in a world where national identity... My daughters carry two passports because my wife is English and grew up in Canada. Actually, they carry three. They have mine, too. So exactly what one's nationality is now is not a question, but it is often a fan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you, Rob. So uh, we're out of time. Thank you very much for coming. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 